Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a serial entrepreneur, someone that has been around the block many, many, many times. Uh, and I think that we're going to learn quite a bit, you know, different industries, different sectors that he has been involved. But I guess, you know, let's say, let's, let's really go right into it. So without further ado, welcome to the show today, Mike Servinis. Hey, thanks for having me. So originally you were from from where originally? Born and raised where? In Canada or where? I was born and raised in Canada, just outside of Toronto. Got it. Very nice. My wife is actually from Montreal, so more the Frenchy side. But uh, in Toronto now, there is a lot of good stuff and innovation happening. Yeah, I mean, Toronto is going through a, a, a renaissance, a hyper growth period. There's more cranes in Toronto building high rises than any other place on the planet. And we've got the biggest job growth in tech of the next three biggest cities combined in the last three years. That's amazing. And yourself, Mike, how did you develop this love for solving problems in engineering physics? So I was a kid that grew up just outside of Toronto. My parents were immigrants from Greece. I'm an only child. I was a kid that liked to, well, break things and then put them back together and I was enrolled in a school and a program where I had to do a science fair project. And that science fair project ended up winning uh, what I call the Nerd Olympics and the International Science and Engineering Fair, which got me into uh, working with NASA and thinking about rockets and, you know, solving big problems. And I understand as well that the uh, first gig that you did after you graduated from I believe it was the university there in Toronto. It was uh, Microsoft. So how did you end up in Microsoft? So I was presenting at an engineering conference about how I developed this high-temperature superconductor propulsion system. And uh, a bunch of judges were, were there and sponsors were there. Microsoft was one of the sponsors. Nobody in the judging group that heard me speak believed that I did anything uh, that I was talking about, except for for the guy from Microsoft that came over and offered me a job on the spot, and that became my my job throughout college. So it wasn't after; it was during, and I worked on uh, new ways of routing packets on the internet. 
Got it. So then what happened right after college? You know, most people in college in their uh, senior year start looking for jobs and going to job fairs. At least that's what happened when I was in school. Uh, in my case, I got a a call from a guy that I knew from my freshman year. Freshman year, and he was like, "Hey, dude, I know that you've been at Microsoft. You should come and help my brother out. Uh, me and my brother are building an internet company, um, and we know that you've you know you've built software at Microsoft. Why don't you come and work with us?" for zero money and uh, a company that has no name and a company that has no funding. Uh, and you can sleep on our couch. And uh, <laughs> it sounded like to, you know, to the guy with immigrant parents that, you know, saw that their son all of a sudden had all these opportunities, including moving to, uh, to Seattle and, and to Redmond to go work at Microsoft and make, you know, six figures, making zero figures, working for a company with no name and no product and no investors seemed like an absolute crazy idea, but I did it. And, uh, that was to go work with Kimball and his brother, Elon Musk, uh, at a company, which later would be named zip two. So tell us about those days. What was it like working with, uh, with the Musk brothers? Yeah. So, you know, Kimball is a guy that I knew from, from college, uh, Queens University. Uh, Elon also went to Queens, but left to go to uh, uh, to Penn uh, to study business and uh, take some physics courses, I guess. And uh, uh, you know, Kimball was very much the sales and marketing guy, and Elon was the strategist, uh, you know, tech guy that hadn't really been an engineer or, or a coder, um, but you know, was was very much the the visionary. And, um, you know, we were the classic Silicon Valley story. Um, you know, my first, my first weekend there, uh, was 72 hours straight of standing up a web service, which back then, if you were, you know, there were no tools, so you had to create them and then deploy them and then build your application, which for us was a, uh, a local search and local classifieds, uh, kind of service, like a, like a Yelp. Um, and you know, we worked constantly and, uh, my first ever trip to Vegas was like a, a, a real, like a trip on, on the company was with Elon and Kimball and a few other guys. And we basically worked around the clock to, you know, prove out the product, get funding, get customers, uh, kind of keep the ball rolling. And how was a, how was it like to work with? with what people are coining as one of the most remarkable entrepreneurs of our era with Elon Musk. What did you learn from working with him? I mean, he's a super intense guy and, uh, clearly, you know, clearly, uh, uh, intelligent, brilliant guy. And, you know, he's a guy that, um, despite maybe not having like, you know, the sports or athletic gene, he has an incredible, you know, insatiable desire to win. Um, and you know, to be on top. And I guess that, uh, that'd probably be my biggest takeaway. It was a few years older than me and it was my first experience, not just building technology, but building product and building a company, uh, and this desire to, you know, to win and this approach of, you know, how to build a company, even though I'd say we differ on a bunch of aspects on how, but that was my, that was my takeaway. And I left and, you know, went to go start my own company and have been doing that ever since. Very cool. And SIP2 ended up being acquired by Altavista for 300 million cash. So uh, I guess that was their 
the best uh, the, the 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 first outcome, no, the first uh, successful outcome, I believe of of Elon Musk. So, anyways, let's talk about your first rodeo. Let's talk about Doc Space. How did you come up with the with the idea, and how did you decide to say, hey, let's let's go and do this thing? So, I happen to be in a diner called the Wayne Gretzky Diner, very Canadian, of course, uh, in Edmonton, Alberta, where my girlfriend was living and working and I was visiting and I happened to be having breakfast with a, a friend that I played uh, volleyball with. And by accident, I spilled coffee, you know, on the guy beside us. Uh, and all of a sudden, you know, him and I were building a business two weeks later uh, and starting a company. And this idea was pretty simple that, you know, we wouldn't be using FedEx and we wouldn't be using, uh, you know, document courier services in the future. Um, we'd all have, you know, our documents, our files, our videos, our pictures in the cloud, and we'd be able to access them from our computers and probably other devices in the future. So your documents in the cloud was, you know, kind of how we, how we got started and we named it doc space. And, um, you know, we start going to build effectively one of the first cloud companies. So how was it like to, to, um, you know, now like you are the founder and, and, you know, putting the team together and, and especially like in this case, you were acting as the CTO. So, so what was the process like of, of recruiting, you know, engineers as well and, and building up the business from the ground up? Yeah. So, I mean, building a company versus a product or a technology, a technology for me was just way more exciting and way more of a complex problem, uh, way more interesting. Um, I actually played the chief technology officer role uh, as a co-founder and our other co-founder played the CEO role. Um, but to be honest, it was, it was a mad sprint to build this company and be one of the you know, 800 pound gorillas in the space over a very short span of time. And I would say my biggest, um, you know, one of my biggest takeaways from my zip two experience was, um, you know, how, how valuable and how important culture could be if, you know, you really, um, focused on your people and focused on that as a kind of competitive weapon, uh, you know, and key part of your strategy versus, you know, just building a better app or just building technology. So, um, building culture was probably my, the, the biggest thing that I put, you know, energy into and that, uh, I took out of it because it was success. Those people that were part of our early doc space team, we were a family, we were a competitive, you know, you know, team and a global sport. Uh, and we all wanted to win. And, you know, it was my first example of if you give people a mission that they're passionate about and you set high goals and, you know, a global ambition, um, people become better versions of themselves. They grow, they, they rally to, uh, you know, to a, a place where, you know, one plus one equals a thousand a million. Um, and, and that's what winning companies are made of. Uh, it's not, it's not just a cool technology or a patent or a, a slick product. Uh, you need people. It's a team sport. 
and culture is what makes those teams winning teams. A hundred percent. It's all about the people. And, and here you guys got really lucky. Uh, and I think that luck is preparation meeting opportunity, but uh, definitely the opportunity here now, because uh, you guys literally sold the business before, you know, everything came crashing down. Yeah. I mean, the timing was miraculous. Uh, sometimes it's better to be a little lucky than good. <laughs> and this was one of those circumstances where we, we incorporated and got going in November of 97. And by November of 99, we had signed an agreement to be acquired for about half a billion dollars. Wow. And by March, when the deal closed, um, it had closed seven days before the market peaked in the year 2000. And then everything started to tank. And, uh, you know, if that wasn't lucky enough, in the next six months, you know, our company, our new company, Critical Path, was still growing. And while the market was tanking, our company was growing and our stock price went from $19 a share to $126 a share. So what was a half a billion dollar uh, transaction was now, because it was a cash and stock deal, was now like a $3 billion transaction. Wow. Wow. And, and how long did it take? I mean, how did this uh, deal come about? You know, we, we were talking to other companies in the space and they were finding us, um, you know, who believed that the cloud was where the action would be in the future, that all applications and data would just live in the cloud. And, you know, I'm not sure anybody really understood what the cloud was, uh, and that could still be the case today, 20 <laughs> years later, but, um, you know, we thought the winners in the category were not going to be necessarily like one application wonders, uh, one trick ponies. They were going to uh, be suites of applications and suites of, of services that individuals and eventually companies would sign up to. Um, so we met through that process. It started out as a partnership discussion. And all of a sudden, uh, and, you know, they were a darling at the time, right? They were on the cover of every magazine, cover of Fortune and, and whatnot. Um, all of a sudden, we got to, hey, two, these two things are better together. Um, so one Salesforce, one distribution strategy, you know, one cloud infrastructure. And, you know, Critical Path had something like 27 data centers around the world. Um, the two just made sense together. And to achieve our mission to be like the leading global cloud uh, platform and what we were doing, we just felt like it was the better path. And, uh, and we, we had no idea what would happen in the market and we had no idea that the value would balloon. Uh, I mean, these were, these were crazy times. Yeah, absolutely. And, and why would you say that it took um, so much time? I mean, we're talking about almost eight years for you to, to go at it again. Why? That is a great question that I think about a lot. And, uh, you know, I have no regrets, but I do uh, think about like, what were all the factors? One factor was, I definitely saw the opportunity to uh, make critical path into, you know, an even bigger, better version of itself. You know, the market had other ideas. Uh, you know, the telecom bust came after the dot-com bubble bursting. 9-11 happened. Uh, things got very complicated. And, um, you know, I stuck around and, uh, 
you know, it's more typical that, you know, you, you exit, you're in the dead president's club and in 12 months you leave. Um, for me, I was really open to learning. Uh, I'd gone from, you know, CTO to, you know, uh, or from product guy, engineer guy to, you know, founder, CTO, I had more money than I was going to ever need. And that was not really what was important to me. Uh, I just saw it as an opportunity to learn. And, um, and, you know, if I had been purely financially motivated, I might've just ejected after a year, uh, and started something sooner, something new again, sooner, but, um, but I wasn't, and I really saw, you know, uh, something really exciting and, the people were, were frankly, by the, by the time I left, I mean, it was a lot of my, my DocSpace team members that were in senior, you know, senior leadership positions in the C-suite. And, um, you know, I loved it. And it was, you know, I was a young guy traveling uh, to every country on the planet, you know, at least a few times a year. So it was a pretty fun gig. Got it. So after that, that acquisition you did, about five years with Critical Path, uh, and then you did Indigo. So if you have to um, just get one learning from your time at Critical Path and then another one at Indigo, what would those learnings be? Just one from each. You know, I uh, at Critical Path, I think it was it was my MBA, and uh, and that said, I stayed I stayed too long, right? So yeah. um, if I did a sort of trade off pro con analysis. Uh, and if I was, you know, if I had that training and if I had that mindset, I would have left sooner. Uh, so, you know, know, know when the right time is to move on, um, would have been the sort of the headline, um, the learning, you know, I moved back to Canada because I met my wife and, you know, we did a spreadsheet and somehow Canada won, uh, Toronto won the places to live. She was a banker on wall street and, I was living in San Francisco and somehow we ended up in Toronto and a friend introduced me to Indigo and the chairman and CEO there, who is a, you know, a wicked uh, entrepreneur, a great, you know, great entrepreneur that's built a, built a great business. And she was wondering about what happens when books go digital. And, um, you know, I think if anything, we should have just got to that part sooner. Uh, you know, I'd never really worked in a, in a large enterprise before I was always a builder. And so my headline would have been, you know, to stay true to yourself. Um, no one ever had ever taught me that being an entrepreneur was a, was, you know, a path in life. Uh, but I kind of discovered it. I'd kind of discovered it there. Cause you know, a year and a half in, I'm like, all right, it's been nice being back in Toronto. I, I like the people here. Uh, but I just need to get back to building something. Because uh, that's that's who I am, and that's what I'm. Uh, you know, that's where I can be magical, and uh, where I have superpowers, and that's a lot of fun. So, so let's stay true to yourself. So let's talk about the superpowers then. So uh, I think that ideas are like buses. You know, they just come and go, and eventually the door opens up, and you decide to get in and and use those superpowers. What would you say made you made you think that getting into that Kobo bus? you know, it made sense, you know, for you as the next phase? Um, so number one, you know, is this realization that, all right, I just need to get back to building something. I know I could do this. I've got, uh, I've got this expertise where I've, uh, you know, a network and I know how to sell and I know how to, 
uh, sell in 190 countries. And I know how to build platforms that serve hundreds of millions of people. Um, and at the time, those were giant numbers based on the size of the internet and mobile kind of mobile uh, footprint in the world. Um, and along came this problem that looked like a once in a generation, you know, or multi-generational change where books were going digital and it was going to be global and the paradigm would shift and the business model would shift. Um, and it probably needed someone from not inside the industry, um, not a publisher, not a bookseller, but someone that knew how to build tech platforms. And it just seemed like, you know, a category that I could be passionate about and, um, something that needed someone like me. Um, so I dove in. And you were talking about the excitement from going back to building, but this time around, you had a different approach at building. It was more as the CEO, more at the forefront, you know, and, and, and taking other responsibilities. So how was the transition from being used to perhaps being the founder more on the technical side to being more the founder, you know, that would be leading, you know, the, the, the chart forward? So to be honest, it felt like it always should have been what I was doing <laughs> to be, uh, to be completely candid, yeah. uh, as much as I love, you know, building tech and building product, um, and the nuts and bolts, I guess what I love more is, uh, is leading and telling a story, uh, and getting people excited, whether they're investors or media or, you know, people on my team, uh, to, to, you know, go and create create to create great things and, and build things that, you know, make the world better. Um, so it felt pretty natural to me. Um, I've always viewed building companies as a team sport. So that's kind of what I focused on is building my team. And, you know, I had a very, and I've, I've shared this story a few times and, you know, people find it interesting. So I'll share it here, but I, I knew exactly who, my competitors were not, I don't mean the logos. I mean, I knew that there was going to be a two horse race. Ultimately, uh, all tech categories tend to go that way, right? There's a global competition. There's one podium, there's three people on the podium and nobody remembers number three. Yeah. Um, so I had an idea that there would be, uh, Amazon and there would likely be a pure play, you know, a Netflix of the category or a Spotify of the category. And, um, I felt confident that that could be us. I knew exactly who the individuals, their names, what school they went to their, their spouses. Like I knew everything about the Kindle team. Um, and I sought to build a much better, bigger, stronger, faster team, um, and build a culture of speed and a culture of, you know, kind of openness and collaboration, which frankly were elements that I felt I needed to win. I needed to move faster. I needed to partner. Uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend uh, kind of mentality. Uh, and I needed a technology to build a technology platform and a solution that at its core was open versus their platform, which was closed. So, you know, I built a team and I built a culture around those core values. Um, and ultimately, more than any aspect of our product or technology or pricing or anything, I look at that as the root of our success. And at this point, I mean, you already had the financial muscle. I mean, you had the previous substantial um, exit. 
So uh, you really, really didn't need any any investors here. Why did you bring outsiders into the cap table? So it's a good question. And, you know, I think it's mostly because of how the idea came about and um, the circumstances. I mean, Heather knows, uh, Heather Reisman was the CEO, is still the CEO of Indigo, knows that world. Um, You know, she's got the resources outside of Indigo to invest, uh, as well as the resources and a platform within Indigo. And um, it just made more sense that it was, you know, it was a natural thing to partner with them and bring them on board versus, uh, you know, eject, start something new, put in my own capital for, uh, I mean, what could it be? Uh, could be double the money. I don't know, triple, 50% greater. So I wasn't really optimizing for, you know, what my or what our initial team's potential take would be in the future. I was optimizing for, for success and time was of the essence. And we had a great platform where we could build and test our model. And very quickly, we exported that platform to 190 countries. And we figured out how to do that way faster and way better than Amazon could. I think precisely because of how we started. Really cool. And, you know, there's this saying that says, once you're lucky, twice you're good. And obviously this was the second time that you built, you financed, you scaled, and, and you exited. Why did you think that it was the, the, the right time? Or at what point did you, did you say to yourself, hey, maybe we, we should explore getting this to the finish line? So we had a tiger by the tail. Uh, our very first year uh, from, you know, getting our series a and we, we changed the name to Kobo was not the original kind of project name um, from 12 months from that. So from December 09 to December, 2010 uh, we booked 110 million in sales. I don't know many startups that have ever done that. Um, I mean, it was a pretty crazy situation and we both had a hardware business and a digital book or content business and one led the other, right? So you put a device in someone's hands, they buy it at a bookstore or a Best Buy, and now they become dedicated, loyal book buyers that don't turn and don't switch to other platforms. So whereas you could get someone to download your app, but they may not stick and they may have four apps on their phone and you know, they're not really dedicated buyers because they haven't committed. So having the device was key. So we needed to sell more and get more distribution and kind of suck the oxygen out of the room by partnering with all the national booksellers, the Barnes and Nobles of the world that mattered. Unfortunately, in the U.S., we chose Borders, who later went bankrupt. Um, you know, like, frankly, a lot of bookstore businesses, even Barnes and Noble today, today is struggling and you know, just got sold to private equity. Anyhow, um, we, um, we had to move, we had to move fast and 110 was going to become 250 million in sales in the next year. And the challenge with hardware is you have a working capital need that most software or software service companies don't have. And the challenge with hardware and funding hardware is a lot of investors in the venture world get skittish of well, wait a minute, what if you don't sell it? Then we're sitting on like, you know, this boat anchor 
uh, we've sunk all our money in this inventory that may never sell. So investors were kind of skittish. I had a tiger by the tail. I needed to keep funding it or I was going to lose. Um, and we explored, we had raised $50 million, uh, round in April of that year. But all of a sudden, as I was getting into August, uh, orders from retailers around the world, I realized I needed to raise to raise 150 and I was a hundred million short. And what were my options? Go public, get another investment round. Sorry, guys, I'm just kidding. I meant to say 150, not 50, um, or potentially explore uh, a big brother, big sister type partnership, which is when, you know, eBay and Amazon and Rakuten start knocking on our door. So how long did, it, did the process take from, from beginning to end on that process? I had a call from this random guy from Japan uh, that I'd never heard of before in my life. And it was 11 o'clock at night on a Thursday in August, um, you know, noon in Japan. And um, two days later, they all flew in on, on the company jet. Um, and we had an offer on the table shortly thereafter. Wow. There's some complexity around, you know, the other players that could also put in offers based on com competition bureau and all sorts of legal regulatory crap that, uh, you know, I didn't totally understand. Um, but I think it was by the end of August, I was in a hotel room in Paris, uh, with my primary, uh, shareholders and the Rakuten guys, uh, and, you know, at the end of that, we shook on it and, you know, we went into diligence and we were done. We were done shortly after. Wow. What were the terms of the deal? How much was it? So it was, um, it's an interesting deal because, you know, it started with a bigger price, uh, and, you know, the desire to lock up the founders and the found the, the executive team for like 10 years, uh, which, you know, that's crazy. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I right. basically said, yeah, how about zero years? And, uh, they said, well, that's crazy. How about five years? I'm like, how about zero years? <laughs> and eventually the price came down and it was like a 315 million cash deal 24 months later from you know, coming out as Kobo. Um, so we're talking about the fall of 2011 yeah. and the deal had another mechanism, which was phantom shares in the new company so that we all got effectively the same number and value of shares the next day after closing, but they would be marked to the multiple, the revenue multiple of another digital content company that was public and the only one at the time was netflix and so there was a kind of a secondary exit downstream that was on the order of just under a billion dollars uh based on you know the multiples of our revenue and our revenue growth which was great very very cool yeah i mean i i i was very impressed when i didn't see any vesting and resting and you know you literally took no time so we're talking about beginning of 2014 when when you know you finally closed this chapter and and at the end of that year you were already with your next day rodeo. So so why don't we talk about the next one, uh, league? So why did you go with this one? 
So I got to tell you an interesting story that happened in the in-between. Like I was not planning to jump back in for sure. Uh, Kobo was exhausting. I was literally on a plane four of every four weeks. Um, And, you know, I had a young family um, that I was not spending a ton of time with and a new daughter that was born just after the acquisition closed. So she would have been around two uh, in 2014. And I had planned the summer of Mike. Uh, I was going to do all sorts of fun things. You know, I made the final decision actually to leave right after the Super Bowl. I'm a huge sports fan. Uh, I went to the Monaco Grand Prix. I was going to the World Cup. I was doing all sorts. I went to Wayne Gretzky's fantasy camp in Las Vegas. And I was like doing all kinds of fun stuff. Uh, And in the summer, I was going to spend time with my kids. And um, one day, my my middle daughter says to me, "Uh, Dad, are we okay? And I said, "Uh, what do you mean? By that she said well, well are, are we okay i mean you know for money because you're not working and you're, <laughs> you're not like the other parents you know you're you're kind of hanging around you got this funny beard growing uh right. you know are we okay and i said you know we're we're totally fine uh there's nothing for you to worry about so she's you know showing a lot of empathy at seven years old um and then she said well are you okay and i said I was really taken aback. I'm like, again, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? Uh, and she says, well, you're not, you know, you're not really inventing things or building things, which I know is what you love to do. And that was like the turning point. I was like, all right, it's time to go back to, to starting something because clearly this is not working for, uh, for the family. So, um, you know, when you're, when your seven-year-old notices that you're not doing what you love, uh, kind of tells you things. So, um, that's, that was the impetus. And, you know, I had this thinking about what are the next things that would go through a similar transition, this mass consumerization of everything, right? What are the next things that are going to go from like grandma's cable TV subscription to Netflix? Um, and, you know, being someone that is very passionate about health and frankly, I was, you know, traveling around the world and, and trying to do that and stay like on and stay uh, at peak performance. Like I invested a lot in my own sort of health and fitness. I started to think about healthcare and how does healthcare become consumerized and when does that happen? Does it happen? And my, you know, quick conclusion, uh, was it's going to happen. It's going to be personalized. It's going to be preventative. It's going to be digital data driven and it's going to be always on and there will be a platform for that and like every other tech category there will be a number one and number two and no one will remember the rest uh so uh let's go build that and i got the band back together again although everybody was on similar kind of summers of uh dan and summers of mike and um and so we kind of got started in the fall formally and we kicked off. Uh, we kicked off league in November of 2014. So, what ended up being the business model, Mike? You know, we thought it was going to be this consumer-driven marketplace model. Uh, we were right about consumer-driven or consumer-centric, uh, but what it's evolved to is an enterprise model. The fact is that enterprises, employers, spend uh, about a trillion dollars a year on healthcare and it keeps getting more expensive. Nobody likes it and one size fits none. So 
it's time for a rethink. Uh, it's such a big part of overall uh, company costs and payroll costs. Uh, and the employers, the leading employers have concluded like this, the solution is not coming from the existing industry players. There needs to be a new way. And if you look at the amount of investment and the amount of you know money and how critical this is, I mean, if this were a manufacturing problem, you'd be running SAP. If this were a, you know, a go-to-market problem, you'd be running a CRM like Salesforce. Every enterprise will, will run an enterprise OS for healthcare in the next five years. And um, it's a SaaS model. And the, you know, the economics are pretty simple. You invest in a SaaS model per employee per month, and you're going to bend your cost curve you know, save money on your healthcare costs, put people in the right health programs and services at the right time. Uh, and that will also help them be ha- happier, healthier uh, employees that stick around and, uh, you know, are, are part of building whatever company they're, they're at. So, so it's a vertical SaaS model. And, uh, you know, we, we've kind of learned that over the last two and a half years that we've been out selling. Um, and it's, it's definitely starting starting to well it's beyond starting to it's it's in liftoff phase now very cool and i see that you guys have raised uh, over 70 million you have like about you know 200 or so employees so i mean obviously growing very nicely the operation and there's one question that i want to ask you what have you learned about deal making what is your biggest lesson about deal making uh, you've raised great. a lot of money you've sold multiple companies I mean, you you probably learned something that that gives you the edge. Spill the beans with us, Mike. What is the biggest yeah. thing that you've learned on the? You know, it's ultimately very human, right? This is about relationships and um, deal making between people. Ultimately, has to have a win-win component to it, right? You need to be able to walk, envision yourself, and walk in your in the your. Uh, partner or you know potential partner shoes and you've got to you've got to create something that is a win uh for them uh as they do for you and if you can't arrive at that um you know you're generally not going to get there and if you do you probably get there some you know and it'll be some some place you don't want to be um so win 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 opportunities um that are driven by just, you know, by people who've built a relationship um, and just see a better future together than apart. I mean, I think that's my my biggest lesson above any sort of financial engineering or, you know, all sorts of deal constructs. To be honest, like the simplest deal constructs are the best. Yeah. Um, and uh, the ones that really are about creating, you know, a better, a better future versus solving a short-term problem. Um, those you know, those are the best deals. Of course. And, and as you're looking back, you know, if, if you had the, um, the opportunity, and this is a question that I typically ask the guests that come on the show, if you had the opportunity to look back, knowing all these different things that you've known about building and scaling companies, if you had the chance to have a chat with your younger self, with that mic that was about to launch, you know, the first company, let's say Talkspace, what would be that one piece of advice that you would give to your younger self, knowing what you know now about business before launching the company? I, I kind of wish I had someone 
telling me, um, you know, here's the roadmap for this and you can do it. Um, I never had that, to be honest. I never really knew what an entrepreneur was and did. There weren't, in, you know, accelerators and incubators. Um, I just didn't know what it looked like. And, you know, I'd say the closest role model I had was, you know, I remember at the time, Bill Gates was an icon, you know, in the industry, but I just didn't know what the path was. I was kind of making it up as I went along. And when you're making it up, there's always moments of self-doubt and, um, you know, imposter syndrome. Can I be doing this? Should I be doing this? What am I doing here? You know, is this going to work out? Um, but just the confidence uh, that could be gained from, you know, the, the elder me or, uh, someone like me saying, dude, you can do, you can totally do this. Um, and you know, here's how you do it. Yeah. That would have been, that would have been great. Um, but I didn't have that and I had to make it up as I went along, but it's worked out. So. Well, it, it definitely has worked out. So, uh, so that's pretty cool, Mike. So, so for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say, hi, Mike? Yeah, they can uh, they can find me at uh, at League either through LinkedIn or uh, you know I'm just Mike Serbinas on LinkedIn or uh, just reach out at Mike at League.com. Fantastic. Well, Mike, it has been a pleasure to have you on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you so much. Hey, it's great to be with you. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value either from this episode or from the show itself. Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.